If you brought your copy of God's Word, let's get back to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. The passage that we're going to see is the fourth of six illustrations that Jesus used to depict the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which we saw back in chapter 5, verse 20, where he articulates that if your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you would not enter into his kingdom. And where Jesus goes on this fourth of the six illustrations is to the issue of truth and integrity of heart, which is obviously demonstrated through our speech of what we say and the intentions of our heart thus to fulfill the promises that we make with our lips. Jesus turns next in his instruction to those clamoring after him to the topic of making and keeping of vows or of oaths, which, as we all know, is in a sad state today, as it has always been, that of, as Jesus is going to say, of letting your yes be yes and your no be no. But while most of us oftentimes don't think much of the making of oaths and of vows in our culture today, we perhaps might instead think of this as the idea of just being promise keepers, of being a promise keeper. When you tell someone that you will do something or provide something needed or be somewhere, your yes should be yes. And if you can't, just say no, and you keep it very simple. But for every yes, we need to know that it really matters to God that we keep our word, that we are men and women we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to be men and women of our word. Amen? Arthur Pink, in his commentary, establishes the importance of this. He says, The Son of God did not waste time on trivialities, nor make public deliverances on technicalities devoid of practical value. No, rather did he concern himself with vital matters that directly affected the glory of God and concern the eternal welfare of immortal souls. It is therefore a sliding of his honor and impugning of his wisdom if we refuse to attentively weigh and prayerfully consider his teaching on the subject of oaths or that of vows, of keeping your word. And it goes without saying, but telling the truth in every manner of life matters to God. It matters to God. We see in Proverbs 20, 23, differing weights are an abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. Deceptive business practices are abominable to the Lord. Paul wrote this to a young pastor, Timothy, and notice the connection here. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that Law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers. It's getting pretty bad, right? And I don't mean notice. And, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. Ah. And liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Not being truth-tellers is contrary to sound teaching. The list we were doing probably 
pretty good and thinking amen and amen and we get to the basics of something about just being tr uh, promise keepers that are if we make a vow or an oath we keep what we say to our own hurt because if not it's against sound teaching according to the glorious gospel the blessed God with which I have been entrusted liars make the list of those sinners who are as Paul as Paul told Timothy unholy and profane Truth-telling in every matter of life really does matter to God, and it should thus matter equally to us as well. Amen? Let it be so. As a matter of fact, the Apostle John, near the very end of his book of Revelation, had something to say about liars. Notice what he said. You probably sang this song when you were a little kid, not the entirety of this verse, but partially. But in Revelation 21.8, he says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Now, when Jesus started a Sermon on the Mount, where did he start? He started with the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And if you, commit murder, if you're, if you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're like a murderer. And then he went to sexual sin of adultery and fornication and such. And now we see that the, the, the ninth commandment of being truth-tellers is also where Jesus goes. And it makes this list, and it says, Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I think it's very, <clears throat> very fair to say <clears throat> that professional liars aren't going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. How about you? In that their character reflects their true heart and the true heart of their father who has been a liar from the very beginning. John says their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Again, lying is a breaking of the ninth commandment. Exodus 20:16. you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And when you bear false witness against your neighbor, what are you doing? You're telling a, a lie. Thou shalt not lie. So the obvious question becomes, why would anyone ever run for political office? I mean, right after all, they, what they say is that when you see a politician's lips moving, you can know for certain that he's, or she, not telling the truth. Now, we perhaps say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but in my reading this past week, I came across a prayer from a chaplain in the Senate of Kansas. And on opening a legislature session in Kansas, this was his prayer. Omniscient Father, help us know who is telling the truth. One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we would like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, Give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> There's always and will always continue to be an urgent shortage of truth-tellers, won't there? Jesus wants his disciples to be truth-tellers for life. Jesus is saying that his kingdom, those who are going to be entering into his kingdom, he wants those to be people that don't have murderous hearts and adulterous hearts and lying hearts. He wants his kids, his disciples, to be truth-tellers for life. And so he's going to tell us to let our yes simply be yes 
and our no, no. And that anything beyond this, he says, is of evil. So what can we do about it? Well, as far as it depends on me, which it does, I need to be a truth teller and a truth seeker. And do as Paul instructed in Ephesians 4.15, where he said that we need to be those who speak the truth in what? In love. I know some people that are truth tellers, and they just love hammering people with truth. I mean, it's like their spiritual gift of just the, the hammering of truth. Paul says we need to instruct people in love. Speak truth in love. They say, well, but love hurts. It does hurt. But how many times have you perhaps said to your spouse or your spouse to you, you know, it's not oftentimes what you say, but it's how you say it. You could have said that with a softer tone, and it would have cut a lot deeper. But when you come with the vitriol and the anger, the cut just doesn't go quite so deep because now I'm just mad about your attitude. Have you ever been there? I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one, right? We do this. We do this. Speak truth and love. And the ancient wisdom we find in Jesus' words this morning shows us how simple it is to build a pattern of truthfulness into our lives. It's really not that complicated at all. And we know that the Jews of Jesus' day <clears throat> revered the idea of truth as a standard established by God. But in their practice, their so-called love of God's word was applicationally weakened to fit their own sinful purposes and their own sinful desires, their own pleasures. So Jesus here once again sets forth the original Mosaic teaching regarding truth and integrity and thereby exposes, yet once again, the sinful heart condition that afflicts most honest people. Notice verse 33 in Matthew 5. Jesus said, again, I, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, and you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Jesus here isn't quoting any one particular scripture from the Old Testament. If you try to go and find that statement right there exactly or identically in the Old Testament scripture, you're not going to find it, but it seems instead he's just summarizing the general teaching of the Old Testament regarding the making and keeping of vows as would have been taught from the ancients, the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers that would have been teaching this over the last multiple uh, centuries there within Judaism. And a vow or an oath is simply, as I've made mention before, it's just simply, it's a promise that is made. You're making a vow, you're making an oath, and your word is your word. <clears throat> but oftentimes, what people are prone to do is to, when they make a vow or an oath, is that they swear on the name of something or of someone that's greater than themselves. It, 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 it kind of gives a sense of greater credibility to what they're promising. I mean, how many people have you ever heard say, I swear to you on my dead mother's grave. And there's a bit of solemnity to that, right? It's like, I love my mother. She was a woman of integrity. And by my dead mother's grave, her name, her reputation, and everything that she stood for in life, and the values that she poured in me, I'm telling you that what I'm saying is so. And so we, we oftentimes will go and we swear or make a vow or make an oath or perhaps a promise. We will look for something outside of ourselves to give greater, greater credibility to the words that we are saying so that the said thing we're after or looking for or the deal or the contract or whatever, we might seem credible in their in their eyes. So your vow or your oath 
is, your word. It's when you give your word to something, a promise. And it's why you must do what you say you will do to your own hurt. So your vow or your oath is a really big deal to God. Your promise. When you say yes, it needs to be yes. And when you say no, then, then you've said the right thing. It's better not to say the yes when in reality you knew the no was going to be the outcome. Here's just a few of the verses that we can think of that perhaps the ancients would have been saying or that Jesus perhaps would have been making reference to in Leviticus 19, 12. He said, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Another one in Numbers 32, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation. So the script, the Old Testament saw vows and oaths as binding. These are binding obligations. Let your yes be yes. Don't say yes and come back and tell me later, well, circumstances have changed and it's really going to cause, I'm going to lose money on this deal and so ergo I got to come back and renegotiate this with you. Sorry. You have a binding obligation. He shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out <clears throat> of his mouth. And then another one from Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, no, I can't do that. Nope, I can't, I, can't, I can't guarantee that I can make that happen. Nope, I can't be there. Nope. But if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips just as you, as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So clearly the Bible teaches that the making of vows and oaths are very serious business and that one need not enter into them recklessly or casually. They are not to be broken under any circumstance. God takes vows and oaths seriously, and Jesus wants his kids, his disciples, to be truth-tellers for life. His kingdom, what's going to be descriptive of the kingdom of heaven when it comes and is established is truth and truth-telling. And it's going to be compiled of people who are truth-tellers. Now, the problem was that by Jesus' day, the traditional biblical teaching of vows and oath-making had come under significant abuse. Somewhere along the way, some rabbis, perhaps not all of them, but some, began to teach that an oath was not binding if it did not include God's name, or at least imply the name of God. So, if you swore by your own name or by someone else's name or by some object, whether by heaven or by earth, you couldn't be held to it, even though you said it. It wasn't a binding oath or a vow so long as God's name wasn't mentioned either directly or by implication. I think our modern-day equivalent to that is the idea of kind of crossing our fingers behind our back when we say, absolutely, I'll do that one for you. <clears throat> right? So... When you go and you look at the Mishnah, a book that was written, that was a compilation of laws and how the Jewish people made interpretation of these, it devotes an entire section to oaths and gives a lengthy discussion of when oaths are binding and when they are not, when it's okay to lie and when it's not. 
R. Kent Hughes in his commentary shed some light on this for us. He said the swearing of oaths had degenerated into a system of rules as to when you could lie and when you could not. There was an ongoing epidemic of frivolous swearing and oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. By your life, by my beard. Some men really love their beards, right? Harky, have you ever made an oath? By my beard. No, good. May I never see the comfort of Israel if it became common practice to convince another that you were telling the truth while lying by bringing some person or imminent object into reference. So when we read verses 34 through 36, we see Jesus unequivocally saying that all such nuanced logic was Sinful, it's meaningless and of no import from God's perspective. Notice how Jesus continues in verse 34 through 36. He said, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus tells them here that their wisdom and logic on how to make oaths and vows needs to stop. The, in the Greek language, there's a, the use of an unconditional negative construction that here in this passage, which indicates for us that Jesus isn't making a prohibition against ever making a vow or, or an oath. It's just about making frivolous ones. I mean, think about it. For every marriage that a Christian enters into is the essence of vow-making, is it not? Where you swear fidelity to another person for life. And then what do we say? So help me God, or in the name of the Father, and in the, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Do you promise to take, and do you pro- in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. The essence of Christian marriage is the essence of vow-making, of oath-making, of being a promise maker and thus God wants his kids to be promise keepers we swear by his name that we will do that and if not the clear implication is that we we, that we will be held accountable for that by God Jesus was just putting an end to a misused misconstructed and perverted tradition of oath making that the scribes and Pharisees had developed and were using for their personal advantage William Hendrickson, in his commentary, had some wise words on this. He said, what we have here in Matthew 5, 33 through 37 is the condemnation of the flippant, profane, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oath used in order to make an impression or to spice daily conversation. So in keeping with the Old Testament prescription of oath or vow-making, We are to swear by no other name but God's. And that to our own hurt. When we make a vow, when we make an oath, when we make a promise, and we make it in God's name, we need to swear to keep that to our own hurt. Not, we don't don't do it not by heaven, not by the earth, not by Jerusalem, not by your own head, You can't do anything about your hair. 
That's not how we're to make our vows solid or strong or of import. Jesus' point here is that God is God of everything. God is the creator and Lord of everything. The earth is God's. Heaven is God's. Jerusalem is God's. Every person's head is God's. So to call anything that is God's a witness for surety and a vow or oath that in any way was dishonest or deceitful or insincere in the way that they were making their vows or their oaths according to these things, or in the least way of knowing that it was false instead of truth, was to dishonor God and to dishonor his name. And Jesus is saying that needs to stop. My disciples, the kids in my kingdom, will be promise keepers. They will be truth tellers. And when they make a vow or when they make an oath in God's name, they need to keep it to their own hurt. And this is where it's good to remember that God has no separate categories of sacred, <clears throat> of sacred and secular. Well, I'm, I'll do that when I'm gathered with the church, but when I'm out in the business world, different gig. God doesn't make these separate categories of sacred and secular. Everything that pertains to your walk and relationship with God is, is sacred. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In every sphere of your life, in anything, in everything that you do, do everything that you do for the glory of God. Amen? Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no to the glory of God. William Barclay, in his commentary, he said, Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in some of which God is involved and in others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life, and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words, and there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. In other words, truth has no degrees. It has no shades. A half-truth is a whole lie. And a white lie isn't really white at all. It's actually dark. God's standard for his people is truth. To be truth-seekers, to be truth-tellers, and to speak the truth in love. And it's for this reason that Jesus, in verse 37 puts how we make a practice of this more simply in our lives. He says in verse 37 in wrapping up this section, he says, here's what you do. Just let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Not only are oaths 
to be a solemn statement of truth, but in every routine conversation that we have in our life, in every detail, truth and integrity matters. And it matters deeply to God, and it should matter deeply to us. Amen? Yes, yes, or no, no. Just keeps life a whole lot simpler, does it not? So if you say, yes, I can make it to fill in the blank, or, or yes, I can help you out with, and then fill in the blank, or, or yes, I can provide a such and such, or fill in the blank, or yes, I swear that I will stay with you in this marriage until death parts us, or yes, I will, just whatever it is, whatever you say, yes, I will do, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, just fill in that blank, whatever that may be, then, then you, there you are, and, and, and that thing, whatever that thing is, that you promised and you swore you need to give everything in your being to make that happen against your own hurt. We're oftentimes accustomed to saying that we'll do things and then we back out. Unless, of course, we too fall in the practice of maybe like some of the scribes and Pharisees where, you know, we kind of had our fingers proverbially crossed behind our back when we were making our yes, yes, or no. When, yes, I can do this certain thing for you. Yes, I can be at that. Yes, I want to attend this group, or I want to be a part of that class, or a part of that life group, or a part of whatever it may be. You just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. But when we say yes, and we potentially have our fingers crossed behind our back, it perhaps comes across that when something more interesting, or perhaps more fun, or more convenient or more relaxing or perhaps profitable or easier or more entertaining or perhaps your mood changes and you just kind of had a change of mind or a change of mood. You, we, we all know what that's like, right? I mean, we're, we're complex creatures. And so when we do that, when anything else more attractive or convenient comes along, then all of a sudden your yes really meant no. I think we need to have an understanding that God takes that seriously. The scribes and the Pharisees came up with all sorts of ways to pretend to be saying the one thing when they actually knew they had no intentions at all of doing that. Well, pastor, I had intentions to do it when I said yes, but I just didn't know that I would change, my mood would change later. If you say yes and your mood changes, what do you need to do? Change your mood. So that causes us to slow down when we go before we say yes to something give consideration to what you're being asked to do or to be a part of or what you said you would put your hand to the plow to help out with whatever it may be give strong consideration before you're just jumping in because then you get in the car and you're like oh man I've got 18 other things I committed to as well I just don't know if I can pull them all off and then you do and then half of them you don't do and then people are going well what happened to those so and so they said they would be here they said they would do this thing they said they would be a part God takes the breaking of vows the breaking of oaths the breaking of promises seriously and Jesus is saying that he wants his kids his disciples to be the kind of people that when we say yes yes no no we mean what we say and we're not known as those who perhaps found something a little bit more interesting that came along. Now you're saying, but what if, you know, you, you committed to something, but then you needed to back out of something, then you have that conversation. You just, you just have the conversation. 
Hey, this is so-and-so, yeah, hey. You know, when I said that I could do the X, Y, and the Z, man, listen, I, I'm needing to back out of that commitment. I've overcommitted. I should not have said yes. I should have said no. But for this time, because I told you I was going to do it this time, I'm going to do it this time, but I need you to know that this is probably going to be the last time I can do it. I'm swamped. But you have the conversation, and you fulfill the vow, you fulfill the oath, you fulfill whatever you said you could to the best of your ability, and you give whoever it might be a little, a little room a little leeway, a little, a, little, um, a little mercy there to be in preparation. You don't leave them hanging. Does that make sense? It's not like I said, well, I said I was going to be in such and such group, and so then I must be in, I must be in it forever for life. Well, that, that's not what it's talking about. So are there nuances to the conversation? Yes. And, and what I've discovered is that, that um, pastors oftentimes preach to people that are professional logisticianers and use logic to find the loopholes or the exception clauses to any and every statement that gets made so as to do kind of what the scribes and the Pharisees do, kind of make it a little bit easy on ourselves. Are you following me here? Jesus wants his kids, his disciples, those who are going into his kingdom, he wants them to be known as truth tellers. And he says, the easiest thing you can do to make this work, stop swearing by heaven, stop swearing by earth. If you make a vow or you make an oath and let your yes be yes, do the thing. Stop making frivolous, meaningless vows when you know in reality you're not going to do it because it made you look good in the moment it, was the, it, was the, it, made the, it, it tickled the ear of whoever you gave it to. Don't do that. Be a person of truth and integrity. It, it, would we expect anything less from the king's kids? No. Now, do we do this perfectly? Does Jesus lay out a perfect standard? It says, man, if you ever tell one lie, that Revelation 21.8. No, that's not it either. And remember, I've said this a hundred times, but I want to clarify it one more time. Sometimes when we start going through Jesus's, the tough teachings of Jesus, sometimes people will say, is he talking about you need to do these things to earn your salvation? And that by being a truth teller, that makes God happy with you, and that's why God lets you into his kingdom? No. How you get into the kingdom of heaven is by God's regenerative work of his Holy Spirit. It's a work of God alone. And when God does that work in your heart and he opens the spiritually blind eyes of your heart to see, what do you do? You repent of your sin. You recognize that I have not been living for the glory of God and now I'm doing it. So the telling of truth, being a truth teller, a promise keeper for life, is the fruit of a glorious root that God gave you freely. You're just simply working out your salvation. You're not working for anything. God's not going to love you any more than he already loves you in the beloved. As a matter of fact, he loves you so much that when we do sin, what does he do to his kids? Like a good father, he knows where to put the boot. Amen? Have you ever had the boot of God? <laughs> I have. I don't want it anymore. He said, all right, son, walk in accordance to my standards. Taste and see that I am good. And delight in me forever and ever. And so I just strive to do that on a daily basis. And you know, and when I fail and I sin, what do I do? I repent of my sin like Peter. Jesus says, Ben, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you to keep tending my sheep. Feed the flock. Love your wife. Love your kids. Love your friends. So I want to I get this clear. I've had some conversations over the last couple of weeks. 
And it can lead us to start thinking that this is somehow a legalistic system of how we earn our way into heaven. Not having murderous hearts, not having adulterous hearts, not having lying hearts. You cannot earn your way into heaven. It's a work of God alone. This is the fruit. The Beatitudes is the fruit, the demonstrative fruit of what happens when God does what God alone can do in the life of a person. Are you with me? So I'm assuming, I'm just going to assume, every single one of us in here are God's kids. Every single one of us in here are disciples of Jesus Christ. We live for the glory of God, whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, we all are in here. We are living for the glory of God. Amen? So be truth tellers. Keep your word. It will strengthen what? It will strengthen your character and thus your reputation and thus your testimony of being one of the king's kids of being a disciple of Jesus Christ when you have the opportunity, the glorious opportunity of telling somebody about the gospel. Amen? Let's do that. If you're sitting here and you said, well, Pastor, I'm glad you included me and everybody, but I don't know if I'm in. I, but I'm, I'm sensing something. I'm, I'm sensing that I want to be a part of this. Let's just come find me. We're going to be around a lot today. Find myself, Brother Royce, Matt. We love to talk about these things of what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ and follow hard after him, okay? Let's pray.